I'm looking at, in this service today, the mission of Jesus. Like, what was his ultimate mission? Okay? Maybe it seemed like a, a, a funny question to ask, but what was Jesus' ultimate mission? Like, what was the end, point, the end point, the end goal of everything he did? What was he working towards? All right? I'm going to read this for you. This is John 17. This is 1 through 4. This is from the high priestly prayer. He is in the Garden of Gethsemane. He is about to die. He is in his last hours of his life. Uh, the most tremendous suffering you could possibly imagine was coming his way. He knew it was coming. And this is the foundation of how he begins to pray on this final night. He says, John says this, When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you have gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had before the world existed. Quite tremendous statements he's making here. The mission of Jesus was to glorify God, but in the sense, you know, kind of bring back the glory that he has had uh, always. He, Jesus has always existed, and he was at the right hand of the Father for all of the, the pre-existent history before time ever was. There he was being glorified in the presence of God, illuminating the very glory of God himself as a member of the Trinity, and now he is asking God, I came here to glorify you, and as I depart this earth, may that glory return to me because that is why I was here to give you glory, to shine on you all the glory and praise that is due to you. The mission of Jesus then was to give God, give glory to God. All right? But listen to Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 10, 31. He says something remarkably similar. He says, so whatever you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. So Paul then kind of restates of something very similar, saying the purpose of the Christian then is to give his life over to the glory of God. Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, goes as far as to say in Isaiah chapter 43 that we were actually formed and shaped by God for his glory. And so we, we, we live in an age and people are, are trying to answer those kind of big questions. What is your purpose in life? And what is, your, what is the reason for your existence? The Bible's clear. Your existence is that you may give glory to God. And especially as Christians, you are to give glory to God. And I say especially because even if you don't know Christ, in some aspects you are giving God glory, even if it's out of ignorance, just by being a, a man, right? You are, every human being in this world is a representation of the actual fashioning handiwork of God himself, Right? So in some respects, they are giving glory to God, as we'll see in this sermon, but especially for Christians, you are giving the special revelation of God through your knowledge and relationship and love of Jesus Christ as your life is being shaped and molded into his likeness. Your very existence right now is to give God glory through Jesus Christ. We're going to be looking at that in this sermon. We'll be asking the question, what does it mean to give glory to God? If that's the mission of Jesus, we know that that is our mission too, and as our church's mission, what does that mean? All right. I was kind of terrified of 
delivering this sermon because, like, how in the world do you preach a sermon on the glory of God? You could spend a year, you know, talking about the glory of God, and so I want to give my feeble attempt, um, and hopefully it will be of, of value for the kingdom this morning. So let me pray for our time together before we continue. Jesus, I, I pray that you would, um, I don't know, I, just fill me with your spirit and uh, clarity, Lord. Uh, I, I, this topic is so vast. Um, so God, please give me clarity, Lord. I, I, I want to be um, uh, just uh, in between point that you are speaking through your people. So put me aside and please speak to us through your word. And we pray this in your name. Amen. So as I was trying to prepare this sermon, so um, the purpose of life is to give glory to God, and the question begs itself, what does, what, what is the glory of God? Like, maybe I don't want to assume that we even have an understanding of that, okay? So I wanted to stop and define what is the glory of God, and this is the place that I spent the most time preparing because it's one of those, like, um, it's the, the, the depths of this is, well, there's no description that can be had for the glory of God. Um, there's no way to actually fully define the glory of God. There's not enough adjectives or words that you could possibly have to define the depths of who God is. Um, so we're kind of forced to go look into Scripture and to see examples of when people got a glimpse of the glory of God. And I, and, and I wanted to see what was their responses. If, if the glory of God um, is, is so majestic, right, like what does their responses tell us about it, okay? And I, I want to look into the book of Isaiah and see what Isaiah's response was. And then we're going to define that word glory. Isaiah, right, has this vision where he is before the Lord in the heavenly places, Right? He actually sees God the Father on his throne, and this is the scene that is described. You can imagine him even writing this down, thinking, how do I even put into words what I just saw? It says, in the year that Uzziah king, Isaiah 6, chapter 1, died, I saw the Lord sitting upon the throne, high and lifted up. The train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, with two he covered his face, and two he covered his feet, and two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. This is his response. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people with unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. The Old Testament was written in Hebrew, and if you dig into the words Isaiah used here, this is what really Isaiah was saying. The, the word that uh, the ESV translates as lost, uh, some of the translations say ruined, right? The, 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 the root word of that word he used for lost, okay, is silence, Okay, And so elsewhere in the Psalms, that word silence is used to refer to the silence that comes after death. So Isaiah is ultimately saying, right now before the King and Lord of hosts, I am silenced and I am ruined and I feel like I'm about to die. That's what Isaiah was saying. Why? 
Like, what, what was that? Was it his power? Like, was it his just his sovereign authority and the fullness of seeing, wow, this is the all-sovereign Lord, right? I'm sure that that was some of it. But why did he mention his unclean lips? That's the smallest of sins, you would think. Like, that's, uh, we have unclean lips. We, we've said things about other people, probably even this morning, that we probably should not have said, and we said words you probably should not have said, or we, whatever it is, and you may not even be aware of it, because in our finite minds, we too easily identify sins as small, and then like, well, adultery, or, you know, those are big sins, these are small sins. Isaiah doesn't talk about, like, his biggest sin here. He talks about something that seems so tiny, like my unclean lips. Woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips. What brought him that Seeing the moral majesty and holiness of God, the angels, listen to what they said. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The all earth is full of his glory. God's glory is deeply and intricately tied to his holiness to where even the tiniest sin, tiniest sin in Isaiah's life is flushed up to the surface where he says, because of this, because of the perfect, holy, and majestic God sitting in front of me, in my littlest sins, I feel like I am completely undone. It is the majesty of his moral majesty that shines the biggest flashlight on Isaiah's life. And he realizes, I am nothing but a wicked sinner who deserves to die before this glorious being. So that was Isaiah's experience, facing the glorious God. And that is a common theme, is when people see God face to face in the Bible, they wish they could die. That's the response. When Jacob wrestled with God and he was done, he said, I'm still alive. I saw the face of God, but I'm still alive. Whoa. Right? And you see John in Revelation seeing the risen Lord with fiery eyes and, 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 and white glowing hair and sores coming out of his mouth and feet burnished of bronze. And what does John do? He falls at his feet like a dead man. The glory of God illuminates just how weak and frail you are in your sin and your responses that you wish you could just fall dead before him. So what is that word glory actually referring to? If we're talking about glory, we're seeing like, wow, this is really powerful. What is the word even referring to? There's, there's so many ways to define it. This, uh, in the original Hebrew and the Greek, uh, there's no one. I asked my wife, Alex, I said, you know, define God's glory. And she kept talking for like 10 minutes. And we realized like, there's no way, right? It talks about the, the, his, his glory is, is weighty right? You think of somebody talking and they're like, or they saw a movie or something. It's like, man, that was a heavy movie, right? When you say something like that, you're referring to like the, 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 the topic itself was somehow like emotionally weighty and that if you really kind of saw, thought through it and processed everything, it would bring kind of a weightiness on you. It's like, wow, this, this means something. This is, this is something really important that I should think through. This is a weighty topic. The glory of God is a weight, it talks about its heaviness. It talks about the majesty, the honor, the, um, and I, this is tricky to define, kind of the, the reputation of God. It's a weighty reputation. When I say reputation, I mean um, characteristics that when you look at that you understand something about him. I, I, for an example is this. You walk into, well, my house, but primarily my son's room. You have to kind of leave your shoes on because you're going to step on a Lego. And wow, those are like like swords in your feet. It's amazing what they can do to you. But if you walk in my son Abel's room, you'll see like his you know Lego castle and his 
Lego cars and Lego pieces kind of everywhere. And, and so if you see that, you'll see stuffed animals too because he loves his stuffed animals. When you see that, you'll automatically be able to learn something of my son Abel, right? So his Lego collection is kind of his glory, if you will, okay? It's kind of his, it tells you something of his reputation, something of his character, something of his likes and loves in life. It kind of gives you an image, right, of what Abel is like. If you walk into my office, you'll see guitars hanging, you'll see a lot of books. I love music and I love reading, so that's kind of my glory in that sense, right? You know what the Bible talks about is God's glory in that sense, when Moses was on Mount Sinai, on all of Israel before Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 19, you see, this is commonly throughout, you know, said throughout Scripture, you see a thunderstorm. You see earthquakes. You see clouds swirling, darkness swirling. You see uh, powerful like, thunderclaps that are representing his voice. Like, that's kind of, if you see that, then you're reminded of God's glory. That's kind of his, that, that's his glory. That's his, uh, something that tells us something of his image, his power, or representation of who God is. That's kind of like his glory. You see that this word, we can go on and on, the dignity, the honor, the, uh, the, the very thing that, that deserving of, of all of our worship and praise. This is what the word glory is referring to, this big picture. And the Bible says we are to give that glory to God. We are to give glory to God. So we have to ask the question, what does that mean? What does that mean to give glory? glory to God? How do, we, how do we learn of what it means to give glory to God? So let's go back to Scripture, right? How, how, do, how does this take place, right? And there's, there's two ways that's taking place, okay? I want to refer to nature right now, okay? Nature is giving glory to God. Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. The sky proclaims His handiwork. When you see those beautiful mountains or the beach or you see the and smell that the trees in springtime the flowers like that that's all giving glory to God it's actually God kind of shouting my glory my glory when you see those wonderful things it says the heaven is declaring the glory of God the skies proclaims his handiwork right day to day pours out speech night to night reveals knowledge it is preaching of the glory of God in nature and that's what we call general revelation Right? We learn the glory of God by general revelation, seeing that, wow, he is a powerful, creative, artistic, wonderful being who must love us because this is wonderful to look at. This is amazing. But what is the special glory of God? And this is where you and I come into the picture, right? Because, yes, you, you, you can learn of God's majesty and glory by looking at a sunset, but you can't learn of Jesus Christ by looking at a sunset, right? There's a special revelation that is involved here, and this comes into play in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6, listen to what Paul says here, right? He says, For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, creation, right? Genesis 1, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light, right? This is referring to like a new creation in our hearts. If you're a Christian, just like God created, he's also recreating in you. He's developing a new creation inside of you to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So where do we find the perfect picture of the glory of God? In the face of Jesus Christ. Where is the knowledge of this glory of God? In the face of Jesus Christ. We see Jesus. Uh, think of a prism, right? And again, if you try to describe Jesus, you shine a prism, you turn, you don't see many colors, just always, if you turn it this way and turn it this way, you're going to see more colors over here, more colors 
upside down will refract in different areas. Like if you turn this prism around, you'll see light just refracting all over the place. And same thing with Jesus saying if, if in his face is the trueness of the glory of God, let's kind of get Jesus and start turning him around and see like what are the different aspects of Jesus. And we see in his great power, we see him in, his, in, in events like the transfiguration when he literally is lifted up before the disciples, before Peter, John, and James, and he starts flashing like lightning. That's what the Greek, his body starts flashing like lightning. And what is, what is Peter says? It says, he says, you know, like, let's build a tent. But in other words, Peter was like, oh, ba da ba da ba da ba da Like, it says, uh, you know, he didn't know what he was saying. Because if you and I saw somebody lift from the ground and start flashing like lightning, we would probably say the same. We wouldn't know what to say. It's like, what is going on right now? This is absolutely incredible. Because Peter was just stammering in his words. And that's the same Jesus, okay, that we see sitting at Jacob's well with a woman who had a wreck of a life like you would see on Jerry Springer or something, like a, made a complete wreck of her life. And you see Jesus sitting next to her, loving her, talking with her, speaking with her, telling her about himself, caring for her. You see Jesus playing with little kids and blessing children. You see Jesus spending time uh, with, with the tax collectors and, and the enemies of society, loving them, touching lepers, right? People who would never be touched by anyone. He was, you see him grabbing them and, and healing them. We see this man actually praying for those who are nailing the very nails in his hands, praying for those people. They don't know what they're doing, Lord. Would you please forgive them? We see him naked, exposed, bloody, publicly exposed, abandoned by his friends and family, receiving the almighty and terrible wrath of God for the ones who rejected him, for the ones who killed them, for you and I, a man who never did any wrong, who only loved his daddy to the fullest extent possible with all of his heart. And that love never stopped throughout his life. This is a multifaceted that we see in Jesus. And we even touched the surface of learning the fullness of who Jesus is. Jesus was the very glory of God. For Jesus to pray that he would be glorified was the most righteous prayer ever prayed because his glory, if it's illuminated, is going to give human beings the clearest picture of the glory of God. So for our sake, he says, God, please glorify me. In his resurrection, when he was raised and brought to the newness of life in a complete body, in a body that was perfect, that will last forever and ever as a first fruits of the resurrection, Right, he prayed that that would happen and indeed did. He was indeed glorified. We see where our lives will end. We'll be raised anew like him. We will walk in the newness of life like Jesus. We now know what the end point of our very existence is going to be. It gives us purpose. It gives us meaning. It brings us back to the Garden of Eden to know that we are God's children who he has a plan for to restore us anew and to destroy the curse of sin. Thank you, Jesus, for showing us the glory of God because now we know what we are laboring for today. For you and I to glorify God, this is what it means in this side of the cross on this side of the resurrection, we are not resurrected anew yet. Here we are. There's a 100% chance that everybody in this room is going to die, right? That's not, it's not going to be a 90% chance or 100, like, we're all going to, we know this, okay? So listen, 
for you and I to glorify God, it means that we join in on the expounding of his glory. We join in on the declaring of the majesty of Jesus. We, we, we join the, the moon and the stars, if you will, in proclaiming Jesus, right? And this is what that looks like. First off, when I, when I wrote this down, right, it, it, I felt like a, um, like a terrifying kind of reality because I'm like, okay, I'm called, this is the Jesus we're talking about, and I am called to give this man glory. I am called, my life, my reputation, my, how, my image, how people are going to look at me, and my, my, my thoughts, my words, my actions, my deeds, like everything we'll see in a minute, is supposed to be given over to the glory of Jesus, that God the Father may be glorified in Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. And I looked at my life, and all I could see of was like all of my just jacked up sides of things that are not giving glory to God whatsoever. This is actually kind of a terrifying thing to have in front of us, to say, wow, if we're called to do this, we are such weak sinners. Like, how is this even? But the good news of the gospel says that we are not afraid of God, right? Isaiah felt that fear. I think that you and I will probably have some kind of fear as we stand before the Lord, but not a fear of being wiped out because of our sin. Jesus was wiped out because of our sin. The fear of having to have this moral perfection before God is no longer a fear because God, uh, Jesus, before God, had that moral perfection on your account, in your place. So we can look at God and say, God, I don't have to be afraid of your wrath. I know I'm a sinner. I know I'm called to give you glory. I know I'm falling short of that. As Paul says, we all fall short of the glory of God. But I'm not afraid by the goodness of you, you sent your son to absorb the wrath for me so I can just walk in your presence and you see me and say, Jesus took care of the wrath that you would receive. You can join me. You can be with me now because of Jesus, because of what Christ has done. This gives us a path to then say, we can actually start glorifying God. And the Spirit has a huge role in this. Okay, the, the New Testament refers to us, I, I preached whatever weeks ago now, two weeks ago, and I talked a lot about what it meant to be in Christ. Okay, so I'm going to go back to this because the New Testament, uh, I don't know how many times, like a hundred or more, is this phrase, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. Paul talks about the Christian life like this. We know that we can't perform or, or, or do these good deeds on our own flesh, and that's why Christ had to come. And by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit called the Helper, Jesus sent upon his departure, when it comes in and gives us new life, as Paul talked about that, that new creation that's happening in our hearts, the Spirit, which is the Spirit of Christ, starts transforming our heart to then desire the things of Christ, to then desire to be mirroring Christ more and more, to, to desire um, to, to love um, all the things that will then point you towards the, uh, uh, to the actual life of Christ. How Christ lived, the goal of the Spirit is to bring us into that path. The things that Christ loved, the goal of the Spirit is to shape our loves to match the loves of Christ. We, we are to be little Christ, what the word actually means, to be Christian, right? Little Christ, a representation of Christ, although imperfect, by the power of the Spirit, okay? So the only hope we have of glorifying God is in Christ by the power of the Spirit. And so the New Testament describes this as putting on Christ. I think in Romans 13, I think it is, Paul talks about this as put on Christ, 
Okay, Thomas Schreiner, a New Testament um, theologian, said it beautifully. He said, The new life of believers is not primarily rules to keep, but rather the putting on of a person. All right? I'll say it one more time. The new life of believers is not primarily rule keeping, but the putting on of a person. Right? It is to look at Jesus and his life and say, I want that life. That's what I want my life to be. That's what I want everything in my life to point towards is how he lived. And then we will glorify God. Well, how did he live? What did his life, what does his relationship look like between him and the Father? Let me just read through some verses for you. The glory of Christ was made perfect and he was truly human. He experienced, it says, anything that we experienced in this life, any trial, any struggle, right? And I say this all the time because men, um, a part of our natural struggles are things like lust, right? And the Bible is clear. Everything that we experienced, Jesus experienced. So he survived that battle, okay? Everything that you experienced, every temptation that's come your way, Jesus himself has experienced and came out perfect and unblemished, full of his love for his Father on the other side. Listen to how the Bible describes this relationship between Jesus and God. John chapter 4, John talks a lot about this in ways that the other Gospels uh, don't. Jesus said to them, John chapter 4, 34, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. His sustainment in life, just like food is, is to do the will of God. John five thirty. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge. My judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. John 8, 29. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone. For I always do the things that are pleasing to him. John 14, 31. But I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. John 12, 49. For I have not spoken of my own authority, but the Father who sent me has given him, himself, has given me a commandment. What to say and what to speak. Matthew, uh, uh, Hebrews, uh, Hebrews 4.15, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. It's like we said, in every respect, he was tempted as we are, yet without sin. Hebrews chapter 10, Behold, this is Jesus talking, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written to me in the book of the scroll. Philippians 2, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. I read those things to you, not to say go and do, because you can't. We, we understand that part. But we, we're seeing the end point of the things in Jesus' life was all about God the Father. Even though every word he spoke, he had in mind, is this giving glory to God? Is this expounding on the goodness and the love of God the Father? If people saw this, will they see God the Father in my words, in my actions, in my heart, in my thoughts, in my deeds, in everything in his life? Right? You think of like walking a path. There's like a trail behind you. And if people follow that trail, they wind up before God himself. And that's kind of what the, the Gospels put out there for you. So if you're hearing these things, I'm not going to give you any to-do lists whatsoever. Because to-do lists, we love to-do lists. We would love to hear that and say, great, so if I do X, Y, Z, then I'm fulfilling that, that commandment to go give God glory, so I'm going to do X, Y, Z. It's not that simple, okay? I'm, I, I drew pictures. He likes pictures. I drew some pictures for you guys. Um, and maybe this will help. Okay, maybe this makes sense. So I, I made this. I know it's really amazing. It's like some Da Vinci stuff going on here. So 
what it means to glorify God, if I can sum this up for you, okay, and how this looks, the ideal, right? This, if you say, uh, how did this look like if you were diagram the life of Jesus? Wow, that's so nerdy. It's, um, maybe this would be a, a decent one, right? So you, this is the ideal Christian life. It definitely happened in Christ. You, your motives, your thoughts, your words, your actions. I don't know if you do anything in life that's separate from those four things. I think that sums up everything. Glory of God. Now, you see the arrows on the bottom there? They're pointing towards that circle. And I, I, I'm trying to remember, like, 10th grade, whatever that was, with the arrows, the rays that, like, could stop, you know? Like, the whole idea here is that the goals of your motives, the endpoints of your thoughts, your words, your actions, are stopping at the glory of God. And that that box is just it's one single continuous line. So you, everything in your life, everything you do, your thoughts, it primarily begins with your heart, primarily begins with your, with your motives for what you do, primarily begins with what you love in life. All those things are pointing towards the glory of God and they're stopping there. That's the goal of them. That's the end point of them, okay? And so the next picture is where it's easy to say um, sin looks like. Okay, it's easy to say, okay, well, this is the non-ideal life. You, motives, thoughts, words, actions, and you. So it's like the, the sinner would say, I do everything for myself. And I, and I get that, and there's a lot of truth to that, but it's a little co more complicated than this. Okay, if you know Jesus this morning, and you're hearing these things, you're like, I want all those things to point toward Jesus. I, I, I want that. All right, when I, I grew up in church, okay, uh, my whole life in the South, and um, I was told a lot of to-do lists. You know, it's just kind of uh, church culture gives you to-do lists. And like I said, those are very easy. So to-do lists for give God glory in your life. Okay, well, you know, read your Bible, attend church, uh, tithe, serve in your local church. Um, you know, it, there's some other add-ons. I won't go there. But so these kind of just the uh, spiritual disciplines, which are good things, like these should be happening in the Christian's life, okay? But I was taught kind of how to shape, you know, those disciplines to the glory of God. And, okay, so I, I did that pretty well. But that was all that they talked about. That was, that was it. There wasn't a whole lot of talk about how I work, right? When the door is shut, uh, I don't know who, get, I'm pulling this out of my, you know, pocket here, but um, uh, the, the thought of uh, some, some bishop somewhere, this is whatever, he said, um, it's not my own words, he said that the thoughts you, you have in solitude, right, rightly shows you what your heart's desires are in life. When nobody's looking, when nobody can hear you, and you're alone, and you're daydreaming about something, whatever you're daydreaming about, daydreaming about is going to give you a glimpse of what is the desires of your heart shaped around. Because in those moments when nobody else is looking, right, you have permission just to do what you want, what are you doing? What are you thinking about? And there begins to show you where is your heart's idols, right? And so I was never told those things. And I was a good religious boy, right? But the thing was, I was earnestly wanting to be like Jesus, but I was not spoken about the fullness of my life, what it means to give those things over. And so the struggle in the Christian life, which is the next slide, is this. Um, we're honest, like we want to glorify God, but we see different things like branching off of our motives and the thoughts and words or actions that we make. There's a little more endpoints behind the word, right? Like we have like power and, and, and money and, and sex and all these things that we start enjoying 
that we don't have direction of how is this really giving God the glory or not, and we're making those the end points. And when we make something the end of our goals, of our actions, right, the end point of what we want to achieve by them, if that is not the glory of God but something else, that is the breeding ground for idolatry. Because we are worshipers, we need saving, we need help, we need some kind of rest, we're longing for a rest, we're longing for something to bring us fulfillment, we're longing for to fill that void in us and if we're not filling it with God and we're not aiming to give God the glory from those things we will be filling it with other things and that's when idolatry begins and so guys I'm speaking here before you and putting this out that the Christian life demands all of you okay it demands every bit of your day it demands from the minute you wake up to the minute you go to bed all of your daily rhythms are to be shaped around the glory of God to where if somebody else was to follow you around for a day, they would be seeing Jesus, right? They'd be smelling Jesus. They would be desiring even Jesus if they were to follow you around for a whole day. That is what it means for the Christian. For, and you, when you eat and drink, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. That is what the ideal Christian life would look like. But the struggle is this, Right? We so often are just grasping at other idols and, and straws, but we still have part of our life that is directed to God. And we have to be careful because don't let the part of your life that is directed to the glory of God make an excuse for you to not give the other parts of your life to the glory of God. Don't let that be some kind of religious appeasement to say, well, I did my religious duty, so I'm just going to go do this now, right? Um, if you do that... You, uh, you will experience great turmoil in your life. I'll, I'll say that much. So in our application, as we go toward the end here, so what do we do? Like, uh, that's, that's some grand stuff you're, you're, we're throwing out here. So what do, we, what, what do we do? What is the application here? All right, here's some, some, some application points, okay? If you have great sin in your life that you desperately want to get rid of, that you're like, man, if you just, I, like, I know some of these idols. Maybe there are none of those listed up there. It's just generic things, but... I know that I have this big sin in my life that I don't know what to do with and I just feel stuck with, right? Looking at the Christian life through this lens of everything, the point, this is the best deterrent of sin possible. Because as simple as to say, right, uh, uh, is this something that actually shows somebody, if somebody were to see this action or this thought or hear this word or, or hear my thoughts or uh, is it showing them God whatsoever? Is there anything of Jesus that is showing in this, Right? And if you start shaping what your goal of your motives and desires are, right, to be God himself, to say, I'm doing this for you, Jesus. I'm doing this for you, Jesus. You're going to find that this is going to be the best deterrent of sin, right? Much better than saying, I'm going to stop doing this. I'm going to, I'm going to just stop sinning because, no, I'm going to stop doing it. Um, it, it to, to fight sin is, is much harder. Calvin said, you know, we're an idol factory, so we can't just stop doing something because when we stop doing something, there'll be a, a hole right there that you have to fill back up. So what are you going to fill it with? It's got to be God. It's got to be Jesus that it's filled with, right? And so this is the best deterrent of, of, of sin. Now, 2 Corinthians 4, what this also does is it gives you a sustainment to actually face whatever comes to you. Okay? Like, if you look at Job's words when he said, you know, the Lord gives and takes away, blessed is he, you know, blessed is the Lord. How did he get there? Right? By just, if you hear what he said, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. He recognized 
every bit of life is from his hand. I find comfort in that. Even if I don't quite understand what's happening to me, I know he is sovereign. I know we live in a broken world. I know that he is actively seeking to reverse this curse. We've seen the book of Genesis. God, through people's sin, actually brought about blessing, the reversal of what they were trying to do, right, and brought about the glory of himself. Whatever is happening in your life, some kind of great trial that you're completely perplexed by to say, I don't know what to do with this here, right? This gives us the foundation to say, I can face this knowing that somehow this is going to give God the glory. Listen to what, what Paul actually says right after um, about seeing the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Listen to what he says. We have this treasure. This is the verse directly after in 2 Corinthians 4. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way but not crushed. Perplexed but not to driven to despair. Persecuted but not forsaken. Struck down but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. He moves on in verse 16. So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are natural or transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. This is the way that we can face whatever life throws at us. We know that there is an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison waiting for us, and God is with us and it's from His hand, and we can face these things. Uh, application two, we're almost closed here. I think I'm preaching long. Application two. This is the best motivation to make disciples of all nations. Once you, you find this life in Christ by the grace of God and you begin getting glimpses of, of what the joy this brings you in life and you're devoting all of these kind of uh, uh, actions that may be considered mundane in your life to the glory of God and you see people whose lives is filled with idols who they don't know Jesus and they're trying to find the rest and the security and the peace and everything that comes from Christ and other things and you see that and you, you, you have pity for them because you're like, you don't know the goodness of our Savior. You don't know the joys of the life that is lived for the glory of God. You need to know Jesus. Did you know the joy that you would get would be so much better than what you are finding in your money or in your pocketbook or your material possessions or this. The joys are, are glorious. And they're just waiting for you, right? The peace from all your sin in your life can be washed away. It's found in Jesus. Did, did you know this? Know my Savior. This is the biggest drive to mission more than anything else, right? This is the biggest motivation for mission more than anything else is wanting people to know the joys of our Savior and the, and the joys of a life that is fully given over to Him. And in closing, this is what I want to say. There is a to-do thing here, okay? So, oh, you just, but Paul gives one, and it's not explicitly kind of thrown out as a to-do, but if you would say, all right, so I, I'm hearing everything that's being said, right? What is a tangible, practical just thing to, to do? Is there anything practical that we, the Bible actually trains us to do? And there is one. Paul mentions it almost every occasion when he's talking about a life that is fully given over to God. And, 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 um, in Colossians chapter 3 um, and Ephesians 5, and we'll read through these in a second, it's thanksgiving. He always ties, when he's writing for the Christian, 
to have a life that is in its fullness, giving glory to God, is always tied with in thanksgiving. Listen to this. Colossians 3, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. If you read in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31, that we start off with, right, the whole passage is about how to enjoy anything that's before you with thanksgiving. St. Christians are free to enjoy anything if we enjoy it with thanksgiving. So whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God with thanksgiving. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 20, right? We are to give thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus. Giving thanks is, I believe, the key, right? Heart attitude into giving God the glory in all of life. It's a humble posture born out of a love for God that recognizes He is the one who is the sustainer and giver of everything you have in life, everything you get to do in life, any job you may have, down to the toothbrush you use to brush your teeth, the shoes you're wearing today. Everything you have is from his hands. So then all of your mundane activities you can look at and say, thank you, Jesus, you've given me this. Thank you for my children. Thank you, I, get the, I, I don't stink this morning because of deodorant. Like, that's a great, thank you. Like, the small little things we just go out through. If you're, you're shaping your heart to say, thank you, Jesus, thank you, Jesus. I gotta, I gotta go to work today, I wanna work as hard as I possibly can. Thank you, Jesus, for this job. I'm going to go work and every ounce of energy I have for you today. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Paul says we have to be giving thanks always and for everything in our life. And thanksgiving takes great faith when we are faced with those things that seem out of place, the, the, the results of the curse of sin, when we have a, a great trial that we're facing. How do we give thanks for that? It takes faith knowing, God, you're still good. This is from your hand. What does James say, right? Beloved, give thanks for the trials that are upon you, right? Well, how does he say that? Because we even know that the trials that we face in life are shaping and molding us to be more like Jesus and in some way are going to give him glory. So even with a great faith, we give thanks for the trials that are in front of us. And so as we close, I want to say this. Would we leave this place seeking to give God the glory in all of your life by giving him thanks for all things in Christ by the help of the Holy Spirit. Guys, this was the mission of Jesus, and I pray this can be our ultimate foundational mission for Redeemer Fellowship. Let's pray. Jesus, um, thank you for grace because um, we would have absolutely no hope in life Lord, if you did not step down into history, become a man, live the life we cannot live, die the death that we deserve in order to restore us back to you. Holy Spirit, I pray for our church, for every single person sitting this morning, where we all have parts of our life that are not touched by you. We all have areas in our heart that we have not allowed you to grab yet, that are not focused on your glory, that are not smelling like you or, or, or pointing people towards you, but rather are just the indulgement of, of, of some false idol underneath the service. God, would you open our eyes to see what those are, repent of them in the Holy Spirit, shape us and mold us to desire you and you alone. Thank you, Jesus, that in your face we see the fullness of the glory of God. And may we be a church that just joins in the chorus and expounding the great glory of God that is found in your face, Lord. 
We pray this in your good name. Amen.